When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, August 23rd, the Subtweeting Your Spouse edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have the lovely June Thomas, senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hello, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. What's up? I've clearly drunk my coffee before the show, which is not what I <laughs> usually do because I'm so peppy today. Woohoo! Oh, my God. Calm down. <laughs> anyway, before we get going, we want to remind you guys that we are going to do our call-in show where we hear from you guys your questions, things in your life that you think might be sexist. Just call and ask us any question you have. This is one of my favorite shows of the year. The number is 646-907-9859. We'll be taking calls until the end of the month, 646-907-9859. Leave your recorded question. We'd love to hear it. And if you're shy about leaving a voicemail for any reason, you can just write us at thewaves@slate.com, ask us a question, and we'll read it out loud. That's fine, too. All right, let's jump in. Our topics for this week, first is the reverse Me Too, several prominent women who've been accused of sexual harassment. We analyze the responses. Next, Mr. and Mrs. Conway, a profile of Trump spokeswoman Kellyanne Conway and her Trump-hating husband, George. And finally, the trouble for Republican women in a year when the gender split among parties is getting more and more extreme. And then in our Slate Plus segment, June, what are we talking about? In our Slate Plus segment this week, we'll be asking, are barbecues sexist? And if you want to hear that discussion or get any of the other multiple perks for being a member of Slate Plus and supporting Slate's journalism, you can go to slate.com slash waves plus. All right, female sexual harassers, we've reached the stage of Me Too where a handful of prominent women have been accused of harassment. One is Asia Argento, and she is one of the main accusers of Harvey Weinstein in Ronan Farrow's story in The New Yorker. The other is Avital Ronell, a famous professor of both, this is important, <laughs> German and comparative literature. And the amazing thing about that case is the lineup of famous academics who wrote letters in her defense, including feminist theorist Judith Butler. Now, June, I'm going to let you choose which of these two cases, and there are a few others which we will get to, is more interesting to you to discuss. Oh, this is hard because clearly we don't have the full panoply of information. You know, we don't have all of the all of the stuff. But I have to say the Avital Ronell story is the one that was both kind of delicious and troublesome to read and also kind of got the elicited the most like tweets of hey I hope you're going to talk about this or just like in conversation people like did you see that story 
Like there's something about it that it is both disturbing, uh, all too relatable, and at the same time, like full of gossipy details that there is kind of a like a kind of a semi I don't know I don't I don't quite know the word it's not enjoyment because that's that's the wrong kind of tone but there was something very very compelling about it that was there was I have a slight feeling of guilt for being so into this story Hmm. I would say shocking. That's the word I would use. I was just shocked. I feel like this opened my eyes to the dynamics of sexual harassment, had me think differently about it, particularly because Judith Butler was involved and her views of gender. I mean, this, I just found it amazing. Why don't we just, who, who, the details, okay. a few of the details, because they're unusual. Exactly. So Avital Ronell is a professor at NYU, as you said, of German and comparative literature, apparently, uh, you know, a, a lead leader in her field. And she was accused uh, of, and she was accused of, and I should say, uh, an eleven-month an Title IX investigation at NYU found that Nimrod Reitman, who was her graduate student, said, claimed that he'd been sexually harassed. He uh, had all kinds of evidence because uh, Professor Rennell was not particularly shy about putting things in emails. She didn't seem to be taking care to avoid there being evidence. Uh, it was not found that there was enough evidence to say that she sexually abused him but among the so there were all these emails with very lovey-dovey things uh he said that she had you know on multiple occasions kind of caused him to cause them to sleep in the same bed groped him uh you know that and i don't know there's so many details i don't quite know which ones to 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 focus on but you know things that that if it was uh, a, a woman and uh a man, you know, if the roles were reversed, uh, we would have no doubt seeing them as absolutely sexual harassment at the least. Um, now, but some of the details. Uh, so, Reitman is gay. He's thirty-four. Ronell is a lesbian or calls herself a queer woman. Uh, she's sixty-six, and so that was kind of a factor that I think add to the both the shock level and also the kind of confusion level. Like, so this lesbian is is sexually harassing this gay man. Which, of course, is a little bit of a narrow definition of sexual orientation. Uh, and also, uh, Ronell, in her own defense, said that these, these sort of terms of endearment and these, the language that she used uh, was a reflection of both their shared Israeli heritage and the kind of camp style of communication that's often used uh, in queer communities. Um, so that was something that I was very curious about because it's true that different communities, you know, you have different in-group styles of communication. Uh, and certainly, like, I'm aware that, so, for example, somebody who I communicate with regularly who's a Latino journalist will end uh, emails with, like, besos or an abrazo or something like that, which if it was not, if I didn't recognize the cultural signs in that community could be misconstrued. Um and so I'm curious what you make of that particular aspect of it, Hannah. The in-group aspect? Yeah, the, of it? they shared his really heritage and whether, <laughs> uh, whether, that, whether that rings true for you. Well, I'm Israeli and you're gay. So between us, we can just crack this case, right? That's right. <laughs> it has nothing to do with anything. What share? I mean, I guess they shared Israeli heritage that they were friends. I mean, she's essentially, the, the thing that this is adding up to is it was consensual. She's saying this was consensual. 
right? Isn't that that's, just what's That's more or less her claim, yes, yes. Yeah, like in analyzing this case, she's saying we were in this together, um, which, you know, many a man has mm-hmm. made that argument. Mm-hmm. We were in this together. Like, yeah. and the, the response back from this man who was younger at the time, he's now in his 30s, from Nimrod, Nimrod. I don't know. Am I supposed to say it the English way? His name no. is Nimrod. No. Sounds way better Nimrod. when you say Nimrod. Nimrod Reitman is that he, like, was, 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 scared of her. I mean, it's the same thing any woman would say in that situation. Of course, I seemed like I was having a good time. She had a lot of power Mm -hmm. over my career. She was my mentor. She was a very powerful professor. And so I I was nervous. I didn't know what to do. It's what any woman would say, or what we've heard, I would say, not any woman, but what we've heard many, many, many women say in this exact same situation. I didn't, I wasn't, it's not the same as consent, because consent is not actually possible because there's a huge mm-hmm. power differential right. between the two of them. So Israeli queer doesn't really cut it here, yes. you know? Yeah. I, and I also think, I mean, the the sexuality just makes it all the more clear, actually, what's actually going on. I mean, it makes it so apparent that this wasn't probably about getting sex at the end. Like, maybe, maybe she was just exploring. Um, but... It seems as if so much of the conversation around the larger Me Too moment, all of these various stories, has focused focused so much on the lurid details and sort of like what was usually it's a him. What was his actual intent? Was he really trying to sleep with her? Was it just like a casual thing that she should have understood? And this sort of almost takes that out of the equation Mm -hmm. because they are, at least on paper, neither of them is interested in the other one as like a sexual partner. And so then it does just become, okay, what are... What are the power dynamics that are making him uncomfortable on the one side and that she might have been getting off on on the other side? Or maybe not. Like maybe she, you know, I'm not sure there was all that much um, evidence that she was sort of lording it over him in a like, you know, if you don't do this, you won't get that kind of a way. Um, but maybe I'm misreading there. I mean, if if you if you if you had that suspicion, just reading the details of this case, that this was about a power dynamic, they were absolutely confirmed by what happened afterwards, which June, mm-hmm. you can take it. Like what this the ranks the most high high ranking professors just came to her defense and trashed him. It's unbelievable yeah. to me yeah. what what these famous academics did. It's amazing. I could barely get past the first sentence of their letter yeah. where it says, we, we all know her and her accumulated years of experience. And I know I fixate on this, but then they write, also as someone who has served as chair of both the departments of German and comparative literature at <laughs> NYU. Yeah. What the fuck does that have to do with whether that makes me feel like she definitely harassed him? You know, <laughs> right. the fact that she has all these professors like waiting waving her titles around. Like, that's just so obnoxious. Yeah, you know? and as everybody points out, many of these people who signed the this letter who admitted that they had not been privy to the materials that were, you know, that were used in evidence in the claim. They were just purely responding to the fact that someone was attacking their friend and someone who they respect as an academic. And... Um, and, but they did say that some of us know the individual who has waged this malicious campaign against her. I mean, yeah, it's so these people are like Judith Butler, Gayatri Spivak, the, just like huge names in this field. And although they did kind of eventually uh, kind of roll back a little bit and said, you know what, we were maybe a little bit too fast to come to her defense. Uh, we really hadn't seen the evidence. Uh, the, 
that was actually surprising to me that that um, they did, uh, you know, take it back a little bit. But yeah, it was astonishing. Um, I mean, I because you know the these women, many of them are people who do not have gigantic amounts of power in the larger world. They are many of them from marginalized communities. But in that area where they do have power, they seem to be blind to it. They don't seem to recognize that they, they in a certain setting, in the academic setting, they are powerful people and they sided with their powerful friend uh, instead in a way that they never would have if it had been outside their world or someone that wasn't their colleague. Well, do you think it's sort of the nimbyism that you're describing? Like, okay, this is my friend. She can't have done it. You saw the same thing happen. Um, Jenny Connor and Lena Dunham got in so much trouble for defending someone um, sort of in the first blush of Me Too. Do you think it's that phenomenon? Or do you think it's this uh, maybe bigger cultural thing that of all people, these feminist professors might have, um, you know, they should have been the people to avoid this. But do you think it's a bigger cultural thing where people sort of on some level don't really think that women can harass men? Yeah, I do. And I think that there's, I mean, it's very interesting, something that you talked about earlier, Hannah, of like, could she have physically threatened him? Could, you know, could there, was that element of fear present? And, you know, it seems to me, of course, it's not perhaps a physical fear, uh, but there's a lot of fear of of what she could do to his career, what she could do to his future. Um, And, you know, so many of what, uh, so many of the things that have been said, like, why did he wait two years? Well, again, that's something that happens all the time. There are reasons that are to do with power and and making a claim when the person who you say is abusing you still has some kind of control over you. I definitely think that there, on some level, was an a sort of intuitive feeling that, oh, this can't be happening in this situation. Yeah. And if we, I mean, if we doubted it, the letter lays it out. You, Professor Rennell, are extremely powerful. We all close ranks around mm-hmm. you. And this person is a nobody. So, so message received. She had a lot of power and he didn't, you know, and especially from someone like Judith Butler. Like what, what has Judith Butler taught us as feminists that 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 gender is a performance right that gender is 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 not necessarily real it's sort of like roles that we all keep sort of echoing and hardening you know so so power is a performance too i mean this is just this is this is everyone playing their role mm-hmm. well speaking of power as a performance can we talk about kimberly guilfoyle for a minute obviously <laughs> <laughs> i mean obviously so she's the um Former, now former Fox News anchor, who is also, um, as a maybe not insignificant side note, dating Donald Trump Jr. Um, so not an insignificant <laughs> side note. Have you seen the photos? <laughs> Keep going. And she um, she was let go from Fox News recently, um, which is in Fox News uh, is a very different place. I'm going to go out on a limb and say than the either the German or the comparative literature department at NYU. Um, and yet, so what Kimberly Guilfoyle is accused of doing is uh, the main thing seems to be that she showed inappropriate photos of an unnamed sexual partner um, of his genitalia of his genitalia to her assistant. Um, and she was at Fox News, um, very much like a Roger Ailes uh, person. She was one of the people who really defended him um, during his own um, sexual harassment and assault scandal. Um, 
And so she comes out of this culture, this this like very male, very patriarchal culture, and she's sort of like exhibiting those tendencies. I don't think she was trying to like sleep with her assistant. I could be wrong, but I think what she was just doing was this kind of like braggadocious, look what I, you know, look at the big game I caught in my trap kind of thing. <laughs> and uh and and on some level, what both she and um Professor Rennell are doing is like not dissimilar. I, I mean, and she also uh, was accused at Fox of being emotionally abusive to makeup people and other support people. Like the picture that's painted from that is that she liked to kind of do power plays and the people who had the least recourse were the ones who felt her wrath mm-hmm. or, or, you know, who she misbehaved with. And it is funny to me, I have to say, that Fox News obviously is a place where ser- people who we know have proof were serial abusers lasted for a very long time. Uh, and yes, it's a different, you know, apparently Fox News is a different place now, but as much as it seems very clear that the evidence is all there for Kimber- Kimberly Guilfoyle, but that the woman gets booted out, uh, you know, a, f- a couple of months after, you <laughs> right. know, being caught and the men lasted for years there's there's some something to note there i didn't realize or i had forgotten that that kimberly guilfoyle was married to gavin newsom for several years i mean (laughs) talk about a woman who has some serious connections in the world i mean i don't know what's going on at fox news i can't judge their intentions if they are serious about cleaning house let's just give them the benefit Mm -hmm, of the doubt mm -hmm, the most mm -hmm. generous explanation um it's not it's not merely about specifically sexually harassing one person or another like it's about just generally creating an atmosphere yeah. in which it's okay to discuss sexual matters at work in which it's okay to be like emotionally abusive and manipulative like you're trying to it's it's like cleaning up the workplace more generally and yeah. making her an example that is the most like positive generous explanation for why she would get fired so quickly because it's the dawn of a new day at Fox News now Asia Argento, that one came as a, as a shock uh, because if I she she was she's at, if not the lead at least the most vivid um, the most vivid public voice in the New Yorker piece about Harvey Weinstein um, the most honest um, and who spoke in the most detail about what he'd done and the kind of relationship she tried to maintain with him so then it was shocking when she was accused of a young. Was he a teenager? Yeah, he was yeah. 17 How old at was the time. he when this happened? He was 17. 17 and she was 37. His name is Jimmy Bennett, and he's a young actor who claims that she assaulted him in a hotel room. And she came back fighting hard to this accusation. She really said there was absolutely nothing to it. He's a friend of the family. This is slander. Well, she had played his mother in um, in a movie, and then when he was quite young, and then they had stayed in touch. Yeah. And one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that she paid him three hundred and eighty thousand dollars, that was kind of presented in a New York Times piece as an out of court settlement. Uh, the New York Times piece didn't actually talk to either Bennett or Argento, but was based on uh, materials provided uh, by lawyers. So it's like there's there's not a doubt that the payment was made, but uh on Tuesday Argento said that it wasn't a settlement or an admission. It was mostly that Anthony Bourdain, her now deceased boyfriend, had not you know, had felt bad for Bennett, who clearly is in a bad way, and had wanted to 
pay him some money to just kind of avoid a big fuss or just, you know, he had the money, he was going to give it to him to help him out kind of thing. So she's saying that, yes, he got the money, but it was not an admission of any kind of sexual misconduct. Yeah, I mean, I I think that, like, it's not super fruitful to debate, like, did she or didn't right. she here? No. I mean, there are... I, the New York Times did publish this article. They must have found it credible. They did have access to photos that he had, one of which showed them, um, you know, unclothed torsos in bed and both of their photos. So whatever, like debated or not, um, I'm I guess I'm more interested in the larger questions around um, what it means for the Me Too movement. There was this sort of dumb knee jerk reaction, like people either defending or saying that this like toppled the whole thing that she they was putting the line. That's so stupid. Like mm-hmm. it's it's been so so at the risk of like you know playing armchair shrink a little too much. You know it's it's not crazy that someone who had been sexually abused in some way would um, maybe do something that's a little bit fucked up and hurt someone else. Right? That's not such a crazy thing. I think like. You know, I have no sympathy for Harvey Weinstein, but and I don't know why he is the way that he is. But like, I don't think anyone would say that he's a healthy man either. Like, I think there's there's sort of a cycle and generations of abuse. And if if this did happen, you could see, you know, you it wouldn't be so crazy to say that it was tied to the other. I mean, but the other thing that I think has always been a little bit weird about what's happened with Me Too is the sort of um, glorification of the role of people like Asia Argento and Rose McGowan as sort of like these, um, you know, like, uh, like in their victimhood, they became flawless. Right. Um, and, and part of what was so compelling about her story in the very beginning in the New Yorker is that she acknowledged all the gray spaces is that she talked about the way that she had a sexual relationship with him and it was complex and it like made her feel bad, but she kept going like that. She was the most memorable. Hers was the most memorable account in that first one. And then in the months since it has become this very black and white narrative, the crusading of Rose McGowan in particular has done a lot towards that. And I think, you know, I, I, I don't think this is like a good thing that's happened. It's just like I I don't know what to make of it exactly. But one sort of silver lining might be that maybe we can get away from like these people are good. These people are bad. Mm -hmm. And like as soon as you are a victim or accusing someone of sexual harassment, you become a hero, like just full out good person. Yeah. But what about the other side? I mean, I was Mm -hmm. closely monitoring my reactions as I was reading the details of these cases because it really scrambles your mind. Like if you read her response, it sounds so much like the instinctive response that a lot of men have made. And whether but but you're kind of you're kind of resisting the like, oh, shut up because she's a woman and she's been abused. Like so, so it's a very confusing experience to actually dive into the details of these cases. But is another I don't know if you even want to call it silver lining. But if you start to see the women as more fully realized human beings who themselves can do kind of unsavory behavior as a result of what they've been taught or what's happened to them, would you extend that also to the men? Like you understand sort of how some men get into this situation? Like is the is the result of this to see that this is not just about men and women, it's about power and cycles of abuse and there's a lot of other variables and dynamics happening? Is that what happens? Well, do you remember the Juno Diaz sort of contretemps? There was, he wrote a, a piece that was much praised in The New Yorker for talking about how he was sexually abused as a child. And then it came out that he had, um, I don't know how you would just characterize his behavior towards women, um, 
somewhere between unsavory and harassing. I'm, I could be misremembering. I'm not sure if there were accusations of assault, but they're very well. It was may have not been. quite assault, but I but but there yeah. was a lot of women who came forward and questioned how he had engaged, interacted with them in in various ways, like mentorship relationships. There was a sort of span of accusations. Yeah, and the, that was I, I'm still not sure what to make of that, right? Because there was this instant like, oh, this man can really write. He's so wonderful. And then there was an instant turning on him when it was like, oh, he's a bad man. Um, And he sort of grappled with some of like his more unsavory aspects in that essay, but didn't go full on in. And maybe that's what people disliked. But there certainly wasn't in that moment um, kind of a feeling of, oh, let's extend Let's let's thoughtful let's thoughtfully consider why he may have like paid these abusive actions forward. It was like no, he hurt people, um, and I'm not saying one way or the other that that should have been the reaction to Gino Diaz, but that was another example of of um, exactly what you're talking about, Hannah. Yeah, maybe I'm just gonna I'm gonna say that it can be nothing but good to kind of understand this more deeply and fully. I can't say exactly how that will happen, but that it's 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 better because if you if you if you start to be more understanding and a teeny bit empathetic about the roots of all this, maybe you do a better job of preventing it. Yeah. And I'm super interested in the way that people react to a woman in the role of harasser versus the man. And also whether our listeners think there actually is any difference. Like, you know, can, what is materially different about one of these situations versus the other? All right, listeners, if you have any thoughts about female harassers that we have missed or not thought of, please write us at thewaves at slate.com or tweet to us individually. All right. Our next topic, Kellyanne and George Conway, a profile this month in The Washington Post flushed out what most people in Washington at least had noticed. The Kellyanne Conway, the Trump spokeswoman, is married to a conservative guy who is very critical of the president publicly, on Twitter, and everywhere else. Uh, Noreen, you had pointed out this profile to me the same day everyone in my family pointed it out because we were on vacation at the time. It was just a real pleasure to read. Um, and maybe what we can share with our listeners who who maybe haven't read the profile is just like the sense this was really a reporter roaming around their family life, more or less. So maybe we can bring up some of the details of what it was like to just kind of be, because it wasn't a distant profile. It was like a reporter kind of slumming on the couch for a while, sort of feel. Oh, yeah. This guy had all (laughs) kinds of access. It's a a reporter I've admired for a while, Ben Terris. He's a really good writer. So So first of all, just as a journalist, you do not get this kind of access unless everyone involved is very okay with this. So he spent some time with them in their $7.7 million Washington home. He went on a long walk through... What six sounds, miles. Yeah, six-mile walk with Kellyanne Conway <laughs> through a large swath of Washington. He maintained she did not sweat at all in the August heat, which is hilarious. Um, and he also was invited to their beach house, I believe, at the Jersey Shore. <laughs> so, so the Conways were both extremely on board with this profile, which... From my reading of it, was not never meant to be a profile of her, a profile of him, but a portrait of their marriage. The reason everyone is interested in their marriage is that you know she is the president's number one shill. I think that's like not an unfair characterization of what she does. And um, he, George Conway, has taken on uh, the self-appointed role as you know conservative member of the hashtag resistance. He has. Almost 100,000 Twitter followers now, which like a behind the scenes Republican lawyer, most of them don't have. Part of the way he's gotten that is by like just tweeting all kinds of critical things about the president. So 
I'm interested in this because and and Hannah, we can go in a little bit more later about what what the Conways are like at home. But I'm interested in this because it seems to me to be a carefully orchestrated hedge bet. Um, totally. And and this piece is is part of it, um, which the reporter sort of knew that he was being used in this way, but he incorporated that into the story in moments where she tries to like criticize her husband but take it off the record. So George Conway, a, a year ago, or a year and a half ago, whatever it is, was all set to take a role in the Trump administration. He had been a supporter throughout the primaries. He was going to have like, you know, one of the top several jobs in Trump's Justice Department. Um, and then got upset with the way I believe it was about around the immigration um, fracas, but I could be wrong. Anyway, he decided that he was uh, too pure of spirit and um, heart to work in the Trump administration and, uh, you know, was going to stay in the private sector making all this money. And while well, his wife continued to work for the Trump administration and he became more and more outspoken and now it's become like his thing. So. I just think it's like they are such creatures that they're like, mm-hmm. okay, well, this is going to shake out a couple of ways in 10 years. We want to be on one side or the other. You take this side. I'll take the other. And we're both just going to go really hard at that. And then th- so so that I sort of think is what's going on. Now, that might actually be affecting their marriage, right? Like, uh, yeah. or is their marriage stronger than ever? I don't know. What did you guys think? I was just very struck by the fact that in the 19... Perhaps it's because of what's going on in season two of Slow Burn, but the fact that George Conway in the 1980s was kind of secretly working uh, in the in the in Clinton investigations. He was working with Paula Jones, but I, when I say secretly, I mean that he really did keep his involvement on the down low. He did not... He, you know, he went to great pains to avoid being publicly associated uh, with the investigation. But he also did all kinds of work to prevent Paula Jones and Bill Clinton from settling because that was not the outcome that he wanted. He wanted to bring down the Clintons, but he didn't want to kind of, you know, hurt his profile. Um, he didn't want to have the negative associations of having done that. But like he's the person, it is much rumored uh that sent the news to the Star Inquiry that you know about Bill Clinton's genitalia. No, he didn't. He sent it to Matt Drudge. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's is, right. That's which right. Which is Sorry, like yes. okay. If you want to take a detail Thank from you. someone's past and close read it, so he's supposedly so upset at the government or at the um, at the president on like grounds of propriety. He literally sent an email to Matt Drudge saying that the the president had a curved dick. And the other detail about him that I think is telling is that not only did he live in the Trump Towers, he argued in favor of leaving Trump the name on it. I'm right. sorry, but this is not a man who's like like a, a model of good taste and like quiet, you know, continuation Rectitude. of the American like uh, civil way. Also, he works for t- tobacco companies. That's his practice. That's yeah. his law practice. Hannah. <laughs> Oh, my God. I just was, like, embarrassed to live in Washington. I was just like, this is the most Washington display ever. And this place is just ginormous farce. Like, everyone playing a role. I mean, the thing that the reporter is in a play, and she's in a play, and her husband's in a play, and nothing is real. You know? It just felt so so faked like just so theatrical to me like nobody cares about any anything like the way she would try and spin the reporter but she must have known given that she was inviting him to his beach house that he was going to 
write about her trying to spin the reporter. Like, the whole story is her comically trying to spin him that the story is just about her being an independent woman. Like, <laughs> has she never read Ben Terrace? Like, has she never read a word of journalism that she really thinks that Ben Terrace is going to write a profile that says Kellyanne Conway, independent woman with loving husband? Like, she knows that's not what is going to be the result of this. And so, like, they're all creating this farce together. And I had no idea what to think, because there is genuinely a conservative revolt against Trump. So is it possible that George kind of had a change of heart like so many conservatives have had and said like, no, I'm finished, you know, I cannot do this anymore. Russia is bad. Trump is bad. It's possible that he that he actually believes that. But uh, but I just felt like there's just no knowing anymore. I have no idea. All I know is that Bill Clinton has a curved penis. That's all I know to be true <laughs> in this world. <laughs> Thanks, George, for that. I want to, okay, if we accept the premise that they are just swamp creatures extraordinaire and they are doing this in this kind of like house of cards kind of sway, do we actually think that would strain their marriage? Even if they're like agreed on it and like plot their next moves together every night, like, is it possible to do that and still have a like fantastic functioning marriage there have to be red lines right like there is something i don't know rude about challenging your spouse in this very public way like it's an odd thing whereas politically i want spouses to be able to you know clearly people who are married don't share the same views the same opinions etc i want people to be able to independently express their own views at the same time it does seem just like if you completely shit talk and just like subtweet and and generally be rude to your spouse, that feels like on an interpersonal level that that's kind of uncool. So I do think there's, there, I don't, I'm not talking now in a political sense, but just like, right. don't be rude to your spouse. Well, but he hasn't attacked her. Right. He's attacked if he did, boss, I think that would be an issue. And so it's like, it would be an issue if she believed in well, that's, yeah. <laughs> what she was yeah. working yeah. for. Yeah. But if you're the kind of person who might not smoke yourself but defend big tobacco, maybe it's like you see the morality of what you do as less of an extension of yourself. And so it becomes less of an issue. Yeah. And there's a precedent for this kind of, you know, James Carville, Mary uh -huh. Matlin marriage. Uh -huh. It's a type of Washington marriage. And she's such a particular person. I mean, I started my career with these Republican women. It's like, you know, Ann Coulter, Kelly, her when she was Kellyanne Fitzpatrick, Laura Ingram. She's practically the only one who's married now. Um, and they have four children. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's yeah, a real it's a marriage. Real marriage but, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Which do you think has been worse for America, cigarettes or Donald Trump? <laughs> write in and tell us what you think, listeners. Two corgis is the worst. All right. Our final very, very, very serious topic, women running for office. We're very serious now. Um, okay. So we all know this is a year. Very serious. This is a year when an influx of women, none of whom have a curved penis, are running for office. But that was that was essentialist. Okay, that was <laughs> that's true. Actually, that may not be true. Uh, but not Republican women who face a particular challenge in a year when the parties are splitting more and more starkly along gender lines. So lots of Republican women, especially in the House, are retiring or leaving. And the predictions right now is that Republicans may end up with fewer women, which leads us 
Well, it leads us to a few questions. One is whether Republican women candidates are a dying breed. And there's been a few profiles of the troubles Republican women have faced, Republican women candidates in the midterm elections, because they're not exactly sure how to present themselves. It's not that Republican women were ever embraced identity politics, but 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 in this midterm election, it's become particularly difficult to know how to present yourself as a woman if you disagree with how Trump behaves um, towards women. But to me, the interesting question is the gender gap question. To me, that's the question with huge implications. There's always been a gender gap. More women vote Democrat than Republican. But it seems that that gender gap is getting so big that it's going to become defining for the two parties in a way that, to me, it just just speaks of a kind of permanent uh cultural political divide. And so there's already predictions that the 2018 election will have the largest gender gap on record for a midterm election since 1958. So let me let me let me break it down then. We'll start with the first part. Are Republican women a dying breed? What what is what do you guys think of that? Well, if you look at the numbers maybe, right? The the there are going to be fewer women, it's most likely, in the House of Representatives. So take one example, um, if if the next elections go the, the way that they are expected to. But part of the reason that there are going to be fewer women is because six of the women who are – six of the 24 current Republicans in the House are either retiring or more of them are seeking higher office. So I think it's going to be a thing where the few women that there are in the Republican Party become stars, like their names are more recognizable than generic man. I mean, you see this like in like Nikki Haley to choose Nikki Haley, an yeah. example is a great example of it. I mean, maybe this is unfair to her and she would, I'm sure, bristle at this. She's actually a super qualified person, but I think her star rose so quickly in part because she was a woman and the Republican Party just did not have a lot of people to put up on that level. Um, and a woman of color. And a woman of color. Right. Right. Of course. Um, so I think that's what's going to happen is there are going to be fewer and fewer women running or maybe identifying um, as Republicans, but they will um, be treated. Uh, they will get the kid glove treatment, maybe. Well, one thing I'm curious about is so among these many predictions uh about what's going to happen in the midterms is that because of the thing that you mentioned, uh, Noreen, that uh, six out of, I think it's 23 GOP women are either retiring or seeking a different office. And so even though there are lots of Democratic women running, the net result might be that there are fewer women in Congress after the election than before. And does that matter? Does it matter that there are how many women how many women re representatives there are in the House of Representatives? I mean, on a certain level, I want there to be a lot. I want that number to always be increasing. On the other hand, of course, if it means some not particularly supportive of women's issues, women go, what the heck does it matter? Um, so I guess I feel like such a weird, moderate sort of beige blah person saying this but like yeah I want more feminists or pro-women representatives and it it doesn't really matter they're women but I can't quite say that without having some sort of strange tone in my voice 
I think I feel culturally disturbed by the 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 um, future of the Republican as the party of manliness and strength, and the Democrats as the party of identity politics and femininity. Um, not because I have any problem with identity politics and femininity, but because I feel like it is hardening these. Uh, gender differences that are all over the alt-right and the web. You know, like sort of the men are like this and manliness and strength and women are like this and the binary between men and women. Um, and it's it, and it's making – that's becoming such a solid story uh, in America, this sort of cultural hardening of male versus female. Um, so I think that's my problem, although I don't know how to push back against that problem because certainly – you know, Noreen, this, these, the famous Republican women, like, to, to date, a lot of them have been moderates. Like, the names of Republican women are senators that you know, who, I mean, p- that people generally know, and, they're, and they've been famous for being kind of um, holding the line against an extreme conservatism. Well, you not know. Sarah Palin. Um, <laughs> well, not Sarah Palin. You're right. Sarah Palin's the most famous. But the, but the sort of stalwarts in the Senate, these, yeah. the moderate Republican women, for sure, that's a dying breed. Do you think that this narrative gets scrambled at all if the Republican candidate in 2020, assuming like let's let's play out a scenario in which Trump doesn't run (laughs) or 2024, whatever. Let's do 2024. Um, If it's a woman, if it's Nikki Haley or someone, you know, a player, a Republican woman, a Republican woman. Right. I think I think uh, the Democrats will most likely run a woman in 2020. I think there's. you know, both sides seem to see a woman as the biggest threat to Trump. Um, but what what does it do to the Republicans as the party of men if they put a woman as their sort of figurehead in the near-ish future, do you guys think? I guess my feeling about this is that I keep seeing and kind of getting excited about, you know, statements like, you know, the Republicans are not going to be able to elect a president because they're just old people and they're, you know, demographically, they're old white people and demographically, you know, their their days are numbered. And then it doesn't seem to pan out. And that we know that a lot of white women voted for Trump and still apparently support him. It seems that when you look at the kind of the breakdown of, of who, you know, demographic breakdown of who supports what and who uh, in the United States, things like education, race are just as big of actually sometimes more important factors than gender that they're you know that let's not pretend that there aren't a bunch of white women who support Trump and so it's not just like yes I mean I totally get this picture of of you know the the part of the of the the polarization of the political parties has to do with you know just starker divisions but it's not like all the women are on one side all the men are on the other side right but I at the risk of sounding defensive uh, it's not college-educated younger women who voted for Trump. We right. should like right. that's one of the more interesting things that when you look at the slicing of the data, it's women without college educations and um, slightly older women who tend to be that group that right. is pretty still faithful to Trump. Yeah. What do you guys think of the um, the sort of battle cry from Republicans and specifically Republican women that they don't do identity politics, given all of this, given given your formulation, Hannah, that they are calcifying as the party of, um, if not maleness, then a certain kind of cultural masculinity. Let's call it that. Um, 
do you think it's it's unfair for them to say they don't do identity politics? And then for someone like, you know, I, I keep bringing up Nikki Haley, but but it's it's um, these are women who have in some way traded on their identity as women, like a certain kind of conservative woman that is an identity. That's an excellent question. Whiteness is now identity politics. So that totally. may be a way to fight back. Just continuously point out that the that that sort of white maleness has become as much of a victim identity. In fact, in many ways, a more florid and flourishing and elaborate victim identity, um, merely for being like newly discovered um, than other victim identities. And it speaks the exact same language and it has the exact same narrative as every other identity politics. And your second question. What was your second question? It was, oh, Nikki Haley. I mean, the problem with Nikki Haley is that she's one of a kind. So it's really hard to use her as an example. Like she fought. I mean, the thing you have to admire about her is she didn't actually ever run on identity politics. I was following her campaign at the time that she was running. I mean, in in the state. And she um, she like wouldn't answer any question about being a woman and she wouldn't answer any question about being a person of color. Like she just refused to speak about it. That Why is way. that admirable? And, I no, 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 no. Sorry. That's not what's admirable. <laughs> what's admirable is that was the like oldest, most entrenched old boys network on planet America mm-hmm. that she brought down. Like that was amazing what she did. And she did it strategically. And the only and the way that she decided to do it strategically and succeeded was by what I just said, like not right. ever mentioning that she was female or a person of color. Now, not mentioning it doesn't mean that you're not using it or that everybody's not responding to it. So right. I don't really know how that works. You know, I don't but know. you don't think someone like that in a position of supreme power, let's say, would on some level erode this this uh, you know, or she, if she might doesn't talk because about it. I don't know because her personal experience. I mean, I spent like her sisters, like 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 a kind of spiritual yogi, and her family were like immigrants who were sort of on the edges of the southern town. I mean, it can't be that that experience is not in her soul somewhere, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Like one assumes it would come out here and there. Like, could she really do the same thing with immigration? That he like wouldn't it come out at some point, or is this just like wishful? thinking, you know, that you feel like a woman of color at some point must, you know, make more benevolent decisions than Donald Trump. I don't know. You You know, know? it's interesting uh, and not terribly relevant, perhaps, but in Britain, the Home Secretary is the son of uh, immigrants from the Asian subcontinent. And people say the same thing, like he, he wouldn't have the same attitudes, right? He couldn't be like a typical Tory on immigration. Um, And it's just not clear. But the fact that people assume that is useful. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Listeners, if you have any interesting thing going on with a Republican woman running in your district, like would you ever vote for a Republican woman over a Democratic man in your district? We're interested in hearing specific stories about Republican women in this campaign. So please write us at thewavesatslate.com or tweet at one of us a local news story and we will read it. Okay. On to recommendations. June, what do you have? I'm kind of nervous about making this recommendation because a show, a Netflix show that I enjoyed a lot, has been absolutely trashed uh, by critics and also by a lot of people on Twitter who I suspect have not seen a single episode. Um, so the show is insatiable. It has gotten terrible reviews, all of which <laughs> are wrong. 
And if you are one of these people who have been put off by claims that it's fat shaming and hateful, you have gotten a bum steer. Uh, the first episode, which I concede is the weakest, uh, does indeed involve the main character losing 70 pounds in unlikely circumstances. But the show is actually about a person who has been bullied her whole life and been treated a certain way her whole life and gotten a bad deal her whole life, physically transforming and expecting that now the world will change. And in a sense, the show is about her reconciling her inside and her outside, uh, which makes it seem like a very earnest show, which is, I would say, the thing that people have gotten wrong. It is a very, it's to me, very obviously satirical, although perhaps not clear to everybody. And it's exceedingly queer, which would not justify a show that had all kinds of uh, other problems. Uh, but just so happens that it is uh, exceedingly queer, one of the queerest shows I've ever seen. Um, I would say it is not perfect, um, but it is not by any means the abomination that some reviewers or tweeters <laughs> would have you think. And, you know, clearly the camp sensibility isn't for everyone, but for me, it's like a profoundly humane and loving show, and I absolutely adored it. And I, I'm very curious if, if listeners uh, did watch it and hated it. I'm. I would like to hear because I. I. Wow. To me, the the critics are wrong. That was a very defensive and very intriguing recommendation, and I'm definitely going to watch it now. Uh, and I agree. If listeners like think it's worth talking about, we've we've discussed it. Then let us know. But I'm definitely going to watch it after that recommendation. I I trust June. Um, all right. I'm going to be perfectly honest here. There's only one thing that's been soothing me these last two weeks. Um, my daughter is leaving for college on Ooh. Friday this week. That's the day after this podcast airs. We move in. It's very terrible and very awesome, um, both at once. Uh, but it's making me anxious. It's like a big tidal wave coming. I have no idea what's on the other side of it. And so the only thing that's like puppies, kittens, puppies, kittens, <laughs> like making me feel okay is making it. that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know. I know. Did you guys already recommend this? No, I haven't even watched oh, okay. this episode yet. All right. So Making It is the NBC show, uh, Amy Poehler, Nick Offerman. It's on the model of the Great British Baking Show. It's basically, uh, you you take these, there's sort of a group of makers, meaning they do like, they're people who are skilled at crafts and projects from all over the country. It's It's filmed exactly like the Great British Baking Show. So it's under a tent and it has the exact same spirit, meaning it's like, gentle and loving and charming and goofy and 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 very not mean like the makers are helping each other in the way that people used to in the great british speaking show when they're done with their own project they're like can i help you with your project um and it is so sweet and i watched it once and i'm like i'm not going to really watch this again and then it i watch it all the time i mean there aren't enough for me to watch all the time but it's just such a sweet it just puts me in such a good mood i love the show and they're really funny together that's awesome cool yeah yeah. Noreen. Um, so the way I'm justifying my recommendation for the double X audience is that it's a study of masculinity and the bad effects that masculinity can have on our culture. Um, I've been mainlining God, billions. Have you guys watched billions? I have, I have hate watched every episode of billions. <laughs> I'm so addicted. Um, so I got into billions when there was a succession uh, sized hole in my life mm -hmm. and I thought, well, why not? Um, and 
it's not like a good show, although it gets better. It thinks it's so good and it's not, but it's so watchable. Right. That's what's embarrassing for it. You're yeah. like, ooh. I know um, you thought that was clever. Really wasn't, but I know, love it. I know. But it has these two sort of like, uh, you know, different versions of alpha males, butting heads. The first In the first season, my favorite character, Wendy Rhodes, who is this sort of like performance coach slash shrink slash wise all-seeing goddess, tells everyone to find their alpha. And I've been telling myself to find my alpha ever since. Um, <laughs> but so it's it's Wendy Rhodes. You husband. mean your own alpha. You don't mean like a man. No, 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 no. My own alpha. That's that's what <laughs> okay. Wendy Rhodes does. She tells, she uh-huh. figures out what your alpha is. Um uh, yeah, yeah, find the alpha within me. Um, so it's uh, um, uh, Axelrod is the hedge fund manager who is based on Steve Cohen, um, the SAC uh, trader who got in a lot of trouble a few years ago versus this Chuck Rhodes character who is the New York attorney general who seems to be some kind of amalgamation of Elliot Spitzer. He's into he's into kink and he has a rich father. And then also um, Preet Bharara, who was super crusading um, and maybe a little bit of Eric Schneiderman. Anyway, these two men are uh, different kinds of masculinity They and they hate each other so much and they just want to be each other in this like little almost little boy schoolboy way. Um, but they, you know, go through all kinds of complex financial transactions to get there. Um, so I recommend Billions. I also recommend pairing it with um, the book Black Edge by Sheila. I think her last name is Kaladkar. Um, it is a. I'm I'm not quite through with it. Um, it is a little thick to go to get through, but it is an accounting of the insider trading case that was built against Steve Cohen at SAC. And also um, Raj Raj Radnam at Galleon. And so it's sort of the real life version of Billions. And if you're watching, if you watch Billions while reading this, you will sort of begin to understand on a deeper level what is happening here. And it's sort of fun to see which parts they just totally rip from the headlines and um, which like characters of color they made into like pretty white blonde women. Um, uh, so I recommend pairing those two things. Okay. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you to our producer, Verilyn Williams, to our production assistant, Alex. Alex Barish. Once again, remember, it's call-in show. You have until the end of the month, 646-907-9859. Give us a call, leave a question, and we'll answer it on our show. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. Please subscribe on iTunes, leave a review, tell your friends about the show. You can tweet us individually or find out more information about the show on our show page, slate.com slash thewaves. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and The Waves will be back next week. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.